Welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Aaron Levine, an expert on the intersection between bioethics and public policy. We talk about the controversy of embryonic stem cell research, which is timely given the federal government's recent change in policy of human fetal tissue and medical research. We had a very interesting and thought-provoking conversation surrounding the push of ethical boundaries in modern science and how challenging it is for us as a community to be making informed policies about science. Bioethics can be a sensitive topic, so I hope this episode opens up opportunities for conversations and constructive arguments. Okay, let's do this. Welcome, Dr. Levine. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. You got a PhD in public affairs at Princeton, and now you're an associate professor in the School of Public Health at Georgia Tech, and you're also a guest researcher in the Division of Reproductive Health at the CDC. Very cool. So technically the School of Public Policy at Georgia Tech. Oh, okay. What did I say? School of Public Health. Oh, sorry. My bad. (laughs) Talking about public policy and bioethics, I know your research is related to stem cell science, but can you maybe talk a little bit about what bioethics means in terms of research? Yeah, well, bioethics is a multidisciplinary field that is really engaged with thinking about ethical issues in the life sciences and healthcare. Right? So an ethical issue is a time when we might want to think about what is right or, or what is wrong in a specific situation, right? And there's an entire field of, of ethics and philosophy. But you can think of bioethics as a subset of this that's really applied to the, the life sciences. And so I'm mainly concerned with what you might call research ethics, So we think about biomedical research ethics, for instance, the conduct of stem cell research Mm -hmm. and what is appropriate, acceptable, good research versus what might be more problematic research and particularly how you might think about it from a a policy point of view. So how should policymakers oversee research? What impact do policies have on the conduct of science, on the careers of scientists, those sorts of questions? And how do you collect data on this? Because I can imagine it's mostly just opinion based. So that's a great question. I mean, I think of public policy as as an applied social science. And so there's a whole range of approaches that I or other social scientists can use to to collect data and gain insight into this sort of intersection of ethical questions and and biomedicine, right? So in social science, we often collect surveys. So I've done surveys of scientists. Mm -hmm. You can also, of course, do surveys of the, the general public, of clinicians or other populations, right? And that's one way to learn what is opinion, but opinion you can gather in a, in a systematic manner and they set, then say something about. I also often conduct qualitative interviews. So these are more in-depth interviews where you don't just want a series of yes, no, or closed questions, right? But you want to really get a deep understanding of, of someone's experiences. So I'm doing a, a study right now with patients for a, an innovative new cell therapy, right? And trying to understand their experiences as some of the real pioneers of receiving this personalized therapy. And those are very much open-ended interviews Ultimately, we'll look at all those interviews together as a whole and start to identify themes and hopefully learn something about the patient experience and mm-hmm. ideally improve the, the next generation of these therapies. So those are a couple of big methods. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of social science research using what you might call existing data. So data that's out there in the world, whether it is government documents or publication records. For instance, some of my earliest studies on what might be called stem cell policy we're looking at the geographic distribution of stem cell research publications and trying to understand if, perhaps as a result of the policy environment, embryonic stem cell research publications were more likely to be authored by scientists in a specific state or in a specific country. And so I might compare, for instance, stem cell publications to to some other less contentious form of, of biomedicine to try to get some insight into that. 
And so what would you do with that information? You would then go back to the field and advice on policies? Well, yeah, I mean, so there's different different goals, but a paper like that might be trying to understand the impact of a policy choice on the field. And so that might be information to, to policymakers, to funding mm-hmm. agencies who are trying to say, well, we, we adopted this policy in year one. What were the impacts of it? Are we happy with those impacts of mm-hmm. meeting the goals or are we actually really unhappy with those impacts? Should we make a change? So that's, that's one kind of you know, sort of outcome or, or potential impact of policy-related research. It could inform future development of, of new policies, evaluation of existing policies, that sort of thing. Okay. I didn't know the extent to which researchers and scientists were involved in making policies, like how close together they worked with the government. So is it pretty close together or do you think there's still a lot more to do? Well, so there's a community of what I would call science policy. And I would say I'm within the world of science policy, sort of in that area of bioethics. And some members of that community are very closely integrated, aligned with the government. Some are much more on the outside. And I think both of those are are valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, working within the government itself gives you access to a richer array of data, for instance, if you're interested right. in, say, you know, the age at which scientists receive their first NIH grant, really valuable to be working from inside NIH and have access to the full range of applications and, mm-hmm. and so on, right, that someone outside the government might not have. But there's also some some value to being outside the government and to, to doing a more independent analysis. So there's actually a pretty good science policy community distributed among government agencies, non-governmental organizations in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, and then in academic centers thinking about, you know, how policy choices affect science, what the best or better policies mm-hmm. are for science, those sorts of things. How have you seen the field change from when you first started? Yeah, let me think about that. So, I mean, I sort of, there's both a field of science policy and a field of bioethics, and I sort of merge them in my work. When you look at the field of bioethics, right, it has changed over the last 30 to 40 years, so a longer time period than my career, from a a field that was dominated by philosophical, theological inquiry, right? Really these questions of what is morally right, what are the principles that support these decisions, right? To a much more multidisciplinary endeavor. There's a much larger community, what you may call empirical ethicists now, who are bringing disciplinary perspectives as well as empirical data to bear, not necessarily to say this is ethical or not, Hmm. but to inform the decision-making in this area. You know, public policy as well is a very multidisciplinary inquiry. It's about taking economics approaches, political science approaches, sociology approaches together, and many other disciplines, just that's just a few, to, to understand how policy gets made, how policy does or does not meet its intended goals, those sorts of broad questions. Along with a host of other fields, both of these have become much more multidisciplinary and inclusive fields over Mm. the last um, couple of decades. And I think that's actually really nice for students thinking about moving into these fields because there really is an appreciation of of different perspectives, right? That's really quite valuable, I think, to the community and and helps ensure that our policymakers in particular have a good understanding of science, right? It's just not feasible or fair to think that our elected officials are going to be scientific experts in, in every field, right? They're, they have to be generalists. Mm-hmm. But they can call on expertise. And so these people who who serve in that in-between sort of translator role can be really valuable. Yeah, I agree. So why did you decide to go into this field? Yeah, so I was originally envisioning myself as a, a lab scientist. My undergraduate degree was in biology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, I minored in computer science, then went on to do a bioinformatics master's degree. And this was back 
in the early 2000s when the public and private genome projects were racing to sequence the human genome for the first time. So it was a very exciting science, right? And the, the work I was doing was fun, but I concluded that the ethical and policy dimensions were even more interesting, right? So ultimately transitioned from my plans to do a PhD in computational biology into science policy, essentially. Mm -hmm. And while I was doing my PhD, I got interested. I knew I was sort of interested in how policy affected biomedical research. I hadn't chosen a specific topic, but this was during the, the Bush administration. And there was this big discussion over embryonic stem cell research, but not a lot of systematic policy research on it. And so I got motivated to try to understand a little bit more about how the policy environment was affecting that mm -hmm. particular field. And, you know, had a lot of fun and did a lot of interesting things studying that. And I think that's also what pushed me to sort of this interest in the this intersection of ethics and science. Right? One of the reasons for so much debate over embryonic stem cell research was the debate over the ethics of, of working with human embryos themselves. Right. And so that was motivating a lot of the key policies and thinking through that, understanding how ethical controversy affected science became really interesting. And I'd say that's perhaps been a theme in a lot of my research going forward mm -hmm. as sort of this intersection of policy and ethics and then thinking about how it affects science, scientists, and how science policymakers can hopefully make wiser policy in these areas. Yeah, and I want to go a bit more into the controversy of stem cell science uh, because it is a relatively recent field. The first amendment relating to the use of federal funds for embryonic stem cell research was 1996, so I was alive by then. <laughs> so ever since then, different governments seem to be disagreeing on policies and changing laws here and there of how much we can research and stuff. So why is it that we can't agree and like why specifically is this field so controversial? Yeah, well, you're right. Embryonic stem cell research has been controversial really since its inception, right? So the, the first paper reporting the derivation of, of human embryonic stem cell lines was 1998. And, you know, the field was there previously. There was a little bit of work. I mean, mouse embryonic stem cells have been derived back in the early 1980s, so 1980, 1981. But as soon as this transitioned to humans, it was immediately controversial. And it really has to do with what we call in ethics the, the question of moral status. So moral status is the degree to which we, we give consideration to something in our reasoning. right? So if I make a decision or you make a decision, we might think about how other people are affected by that. We almost by default give other human beings moral status. Mm -hmm. right? We might not think about some inanimate object, whether this table cares about our decision or not is probably not high in our decision-making process. right? right? Now there's a almost intractable debate over the question of whether uh, an early human embryo is deserving of moral status, right? Hmm. Does that embryo at, say, day five, the blastocyst stage, merit consideration in our decision-making processes? And what level of consideration does it, does it merit? And so some people would argue it merits the exact same consideration that you or I ought to receive. Others would argue it deserves very little consideration. And many would argue that it's somewhere in between, right? But what, how you fall out in that sort of challenging decision, how you think about the moral status of the embryo and its worth probably affects how you think about embryonic stem cell research, mm -hmm. right? And, and if you believe the embryo has the same moral worth as you or me, it might never be acceptable to, to harm an embryo for scientific progress. If you think it has the same worth as this table or a rock, it might be fine. It might even be morally ob obligatory to, to harm it, to use it for medical research. And mm -hmm. if you're in between, it's it's hard to say, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's one of these areas that people's opinions tend to be fairly firmly fixed. So it's not, yeah. you know, a, a question where you go out and talk to a lot of people and they're like, oh, I'm going to change my mind. Most people have a, have a view 
they tend not to change easily, right? And mm-hmm. so then policymakers have to grapple with policymaking in that area. And I think that's ultimately what's led to this environment that, that you've observed where we see policy bouncing back and forth, what scientists can or cannot do changing, mm-hmm. right? And, and actually, I think that's a really important topic. It's something I've thought a lot about and been concerned a lot about is how are individual scientists, for instance, affected by, you know, working in a contentious area, the yeah. reality that one day they might be allowed to do their work. And then the next day, the, you know, an email might come from the National Institutes of Health to their university, to their PI, and to them saying, sorry, that project's no longer allowed. Yeah, it's a relatively unstable field in a way. Yeah, and I think embryonic stem cells is, I think, a really great example of this sort of ethical controversy creating instability or uncertainty in a research field. But I don't think it's the the only one, right? Mm-hmm. I think sure. that one of the challenges of modern biomedicine is that we're pushing ethical boundaries in a lot of areas, right? Whether it's in neuroscience, whether it's in gene editing, whether it's in fetal tissue research. And a lot of these lend themselves to this sort of controversy and then potentially this sort of uncertainty and research funding and project continuation and so on. And, and that's challenging for any scientist, mm-hmm. but actually probably particularly challenging for early career scientists. So for a, a PhD student or a postdoc trying to to get papers out and get a, a, jo- a permanent job and start a lab, right? It's really a challenge if you said, well, I know you're three quarters of the way through that project, but sorry, you can't work on it right yeah. now. And so is it wrong for me to think that it's also unethical to have this technology available that can potentially save millions and millions of lives and not use it? Your question is really an important question, right? If this research field has potential to affect tens, hundreds, thousands of of people, and we're, in a sense, trading off against the harm to one, two, or a handful of of embryos, right? Right. Are we morally obligated to pursue the research? And and this is a challenging question, right? And so in in ethics, we we think about this in different ways, right? So some people would think through what you might call a utilitarian lens, and they're basically thinking about what brings the greatest good to the greatest number, right? And so that's one approach to, to moral philosophy, to ethics. And that would certainly push towards support of the research, particularly research that is thought to have a high potential for, for instance, a condition with with no good treatment today, right? Mm -hmm. Or a a large population of patients. Others would view, um, uh, would take a different approach. They wouldn't worry about the consequences, right? So a utilitarian ethic is a, a consequentialist ethic. What are the consequences of our actions? And that's how we decide what's ethical. There's also an approach ethics that's called deontological. And you can think of that really as it's about the act, not the consequence. So an act is right or wrong in and of itself. So the act of harming that embryo is right or wrong in and of itself, regardless if it has no consequences or phenomenally Mm, beneficial consequences, right? And if you are a a deontological ethicist, you might argue that it's never appropriate to harm that embryo, Mm -hmm. even if the benefits would be enormous, right? So I mean, I think it's it's an unresolved challenge, right? And one of the challenges that I think scientists in particular often have when they move towards ethics, is unlike, say, physics, where there are, are right or wrong answers, you can run this formula and you can be pretty sure how long it's going to take the block to slide down the inclined plane, you know, this sort of thing. In ethics, there really aren't right or wrong answers. There's better and worse arguments mm-hmm. often, but there are multiple plausible um, outcomes to, to these sorts of things. What do we do about this? How do we move forward without actually defining what's right or what's wrong? So for bioethics to move forward, you're right, we're not going to resolve the moral status of the human embryo, right? There are, there are questions that we have to agree to leave unresolved for the, the field to move forward. 
But that doesn't mean that we can't make progress in bioethics. We can't make progress in science policy and research governance. Um, we just have to be comfortable with that ambiguity, comfortable with the inevitability of, of some disagreements among, among participants. I do think that not all areas are as intractable as, as embryo research, right? And so there are areas where we can make better progress. We don't need to be mm -hmm. unanimous, right? But we can move forward um, in ensuring that we have appropriate evidence before treatments are made available to patients, um, in thinking about perhaps maybe gene editing, although, you know, that's controversial as well, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, I think in general, one of the challenges of bioethics is that we tend to be reactionary. Something happens, you know, an experiment that we weren't prepared for, or, you know, something comes to light. This company is doing something that we think is problematic. And there's this sort of race to respond, to develop frameworks sort of after the fact. And, you know, there's this idea that we ought to move more towards what we would call anticipatory ethics or anticipatory policymaking and being sort of prepared for these things in advance. Now, that's hard, right? We don't know quite where the science is going. Yeah. And you don't want to unnecessarily hinder science by poor policymaking, right? But we also can do better, I think, to be prepared for things. There are some science that is predictably coming down the path and rather mm -hmm. than bury our head in the sand and wait till it happens, we ought to be at least prepared with a, a set of policy proposals or a set of questions that need to be answered before we you know, sort of know which direction to move. And so I think that can, we can do that better. The other big challenge, and this is different in the field versus 20 or 30 years ago, is just how global the scientific community is, right? So you're not likely to get the same level of agreement, the mm -hmm. same you know, level of cooperation. And so science policymaking either becomes globalized or you have this patchwork of policies where the U.S. does one thing, China does one thing, India does one thing. Mm -hmm. And then you get this environment where what's acceptable here is different than what's acceptable somewhere else. And are you forcing scientists to move? You know, there's a whole set of consequences to that. That's sometimes I've called policy heterogeneity, but really just the, the reality that the, there's variation from one, one place to the next. And it could be as simple as variation from Georgia to North Carolina, but it could be variation from the United States to Singapore or, you know, China. I actually wanted to talk to you about that because I'm sure you know this, but recently a Japanese scientist just received funding from the government to create animal embryos with human cells and transplant them into surrogate animals, which is crazy cool. <laughs> But so all over the world, countries have, like you said, different policies and we don't seem to agree. But once the research is done, it's technically out there for anyone to use. So as a planet, I guess, do we technically have to agree on everything? And how do we make that happen? Maybe we need a group of bioethicists whose only job is to talk about what should we look into and what shouldn't we look into as a global community. So is that realistic? I think the question, so the, the, the example is right, is, you know, an excellent choice right now, right? There's this debate over human-animal hybrids and chimeras. There's actually a moratorium in the United States over a lot of this kind of research that the NIH imposed. But yeah, there's other countries, in, including Japan, that are moving forward with variations on this. And, mm -hmm. and there are good, interesting scientific questions that can be addressed from some of this research combining human and animals in, in certain ways, although there are certainly important and problematic ethical issues that are raised by it as well, particularly depending on how it progresses. Yeah. How do we address this in a global framework is a, is a big challenge, right? There is no real 
global bioethics body, certainly one with any authority. Right? So in the gene editing case, they've created a, a WHO, so a World Health Organization body to, to weigh in on policy for, for gene editing. The National Academy of Sciences has also convened, which is a U.S. organization, but with global partners has mm-hmm. convened uh, an advisory group. So this is good. not just a group of bioethicists, but includes bioethicists and leading scientists and, and other stakeholders to develop some policy recommendations. Both of those are likely to produce thoughtful reports, but not really binding reports. Right? The, the UN and the WHO could potentially put out some guidelines that countries could agree to abide by, some maybe legislatively, um, but it's, I think, naive to imagine that all the countries are going to, to agree to do this, right? Yeah. And there's this environment where some countries view science as, a, as an economic imperative, right? There, there's this desire to get ahead, to be first, and to, to capture some of the benefits. Maybe it's the scientific fame, but maybe it's the economic development that comes with being the first to, to do X or do Y. Right? But I think your earlier point is, is really important. Right? Once the research is done, assuming it's published, that knowledge travels freely around the world, right? So, you know, what's the implication of that? It's hard to say, right? Yeah, this is a really complicated field. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favorite part about working in this field? The thing I really like about doing bioethics work and science policy work is that I get to to stay involved with just really exciting biomedical research. Mm -hmm. Scientists, clinicians really are doing phenomenal things, developing new cures, improving our understanding of of diseases and so on that, that really I think is changing people's lives and will continue to change people's lives. But I get to stay involved with that in a way that I really like. So I get to to think about the ethical issues, I get to inform some of these debates. And so for me, it's been a really nice approach to focus on biology, but to, to apply a, fo- a set of tools that, that I find um, enjoyable. Do you find it hard to take a stand on things? Or are you, are you usually in between? Or do you usually have enough evidence for one side that you strictly choose that? That's a, a good question. I think in some cases... I feel comfortable taking stands. I think the evidence is sufficient to say, you know, at least based on what I know today, I think mm-hmm. position X is the stronger position, um, but not in all cases, right? And there are ones that certainly are unresolved or, you know, debatable. And I also feel like, you know, my goal is to gather, analyze evidence that informs these debates, but isn't necessarily telling us what's right or wrong as much as, you know, if we make decision X, what are the consequences of it? One of the important things that I think distinguishes good bioethicists, good social scientists from others that just hold views dogmatically is that we should be open to new evidence as well, right? And really all scientists, right? We should be open to changing our views if new evidence um, points to that. And, you know, that is the same in in a biology lab, someone studying the atmosphere. And I think that's super important in terms of policies too, because, you know, as a society, we change our views all the time. And I think policies should reflect that. And just because a policy has been in place for a long time doesn't mean it's necessarily right at the moment. So yeah, I think the work that you do is very important. I appreciate that. I mean, I think you're right. One of the challenges for science policy is that flexibility or the adaptability, right? We tend to to work really hard to get a policy adopted, but then it's hard to update it. Mm-hmm. And this is a big challenge in science policy where things move so fast, right? Let's say you develop a policy for a new form of personalized cancer therapy today, Right. That policy could be on the books for years, but that science could have completely changed 
in months. Right. And, you know, it's really, I think, incumbent on policymakers to try to build that flexibility in. We do okay with that in some cases, but in some cases it becomes a, a real challenge, right? Yeah. And I can imagine that in this field, like most other fields out there, it's very important to make sure there is a diverse group of people that are in charge of making these decisions so that every voice is represented in a way. So is this something that maybe we should focus on more? Is this diversity issue something that is being addressed? So I think diversity and inclusivity is really critical across science, but certainly in bioethics and science policymaking as well, right? And I think the field could do more to address it. I think there is an awareness, but I think it's been historically a field that has not necessarily attracted a new younger generation. And, you know, I think hopefully that's changing. I think there's a lot of really interesting work and really exciting questions to, to be studied that I, I think would really very much benefit from a, a broad and, and diverse group. Mm-hmm. Right. But I do think it's it's a challenge in, in any field. Yeah. Right. And, and one that I think the, the field could do more to to address. Hmm. Yeah, so just to kind of end on a motivating note, <laughs> what advice would you give to younger researchers who are trying to get into the field? So I think for younger researchers, if they're excited or interested in public policy, bioethics, science policy, there's lots of opportunities, right? So I think that's the first thing to know. There's a lot of value in learning the set of tools that are used to analyze questions and then being able to apply those broadly, both to the set of questions that excite and interest you, but also to the sets of questions that that interest other clients, right? I think there's good ways to, to learn those starting in undergrad, but really in undergrad and, and grad school and beyond, um, and then to, uh, to apply those. You should always think of science broadly, so whether it's in the lab, whether it's social science, bioethics, as contributing to a, a larger conversation, right? Science is not a unitary, solitary task where we all work off in isolation, but we're contributing to a a broad community of of scientists, of policymakers, of the general public who are thinking about improving our our sort of knowledge and technology, science and technology, right? And so I think it really is helpful to engage in that community and, and to engage in whatever way makes sense. You know, some people engage a lot online in various forms of social media, and it's a nice sort of democratizing approach in terms of access. You can reach out to people all over the world, Mm -hmm. but others do so locally. And I think forming that community is really important because I think success in these fields really is also about the sort of network and connections community you you work with, right? And so I'd encourage people early in their career to to be conscious of that. Yeah, Um, I agree. I think it's a really nice thing about researchers or scientists in general that our work is more for everyone else it's for our society in general for us to advance our knowledge as a whole and so i I like to think that often and remind myself that i'm not doing it only for myself (laughs) you know i think that's a really good philosophy you're you're contributing to a much bigger whole and in part because of that i think there's a lot of openness among people all over the world to to engage and to talk about and to ask questions and i know a lot of of young scientists who've had success reaching out to much more senior, well-known scientists with a quick question or request for advice. And and a lot of people are willing to respond. Now, not everyone, of course, but there's there's not much harm in in doing that and and building that community. And that's a good point, too, because I think also it's very important for older generations to inform and guide younger generations, because at the end of the day, that's what we do it for, for, to keep advancing and exponentially keep learning things. So that's a good point. 
Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed our conversation. Oh, no problem. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed our conversation as well. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter, and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time.